Welcome to Spring Creek Church Online. We're so glad you're joining us today. In this sermon, Won't You Be My Neighbor, I want to talk to you about what it means to be a good neighbor. As we get started, let's pray. God, we just thank you for this day that you have given us, Lord. I pray for every single person, Father, who is watching this right now, that you may bless them, that you may use them, Father, that you may give them opportunities, Lord, to be a good neighbor to all those around us, Father, that they would hear the message, that it would resonate in their hearts. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1968, Fred Rogers, a Presbyterian minister, starred in a show of his own creation called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I'm sure you guys have heard this show. This show taught children how to care about themselves and how to care for others. And every episode from 1968 to 2001 started off with a theme song that Mr. Rogers wrote, Won't You Be My Neighbor? This song called each of us into a relationship with him as neighbors. There were several reasons he chose this particular song as his theme song. It was an invitation to friendship with an attitude of inclusivity and desire to connect with people not like ourselves. He wrote the song to help emphasize the importance of community and belonging. The song was sung to teach children about kindness, understanding, and acceptance of others, regardless of their backgrounds or differences. The simplicity and predictability of the song created a welcoming, safe, and comforting environment for children to encourage learning, exploring, and feeling valued. For Mr. Rogers, the concept of being good neighbors was not just part of his show, but it was a personal philosophy. He believed strongly in the importance of nurturing relationships and communities. The song was a reflection of his own beliefs and his desire to share these with his audience. Some of you might remember the lyrics. They went something like this. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Now, I'm sure you guys remember that just as fondly as I remember it as well. Mr. Rogers didn't call us colleagues. He didn't call us associates. He didn't call us acquaintances, allies, comrades, or even friends. He didn't call us ladies and gentlemen or sir or ma'am or boys or girls. He specifically and intentionally called us neighbors. We know what Mr. Rogers meant when he asked us, won't you be my neighbor? It was an affirmation that he saw us and we were important to him. Mr. Rogers, being a Christ follower, used the word neighbor because it is biblical language for the second most commandment given to us by Jesus. The Bible instructs God's people to love your neighbor as you love yourself in Leviticus 19.18. And in Matthew 22, one of the experts of religious law asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus tells them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. But the world we live in today, the standard for how we treat our neighbors is just a little bit different than what Mr. Rogers sang about and what Jesus teaches us about. In 2020, Lending Tree conducted a survey with 1,537 Americans about what life was like in their specific neighborhood. The survey revealed that people were not very happy with their neighbors, especially in neighborhoods that were a little more crowded. 
73% of Americans reported disliking at least one of their neighbors. Now, Gen Zers, that's between ages 18 to 25, apartment dwellers and Northeasterners represent the most discontent of them all, with 79% disliking one of their neighbors. The survey also noted that the most common reasons for neighborly discontentment include giving off a weird vibe, being too loud, and being rude. But other reasons we argue with our neighbors are, are over things like trash and animal noises, yelling, privacy issues, property lines, and family conflict. And even if we had no conflict with our neighbors, we tend to avoid them because we're just too busy. We think that they're a little weird and, and we just think that they're just plain nosy or it could be all of the above. And this doesn't surprise me at all because of my own personal experiences with my neighbors. When I was a teenager, my neighbor called me a derogatory racial slur as he made it clear why me and my family didn't belong in their neighborhood. I've also had nosy neighbors who watched us through their windows to see what we were doing because apparently my life was more interesting than their own. Then there was this one experience with, that just topped the rest with all my other neighbors. This one neighbor had been my neighbor for 10 years. She witnessed my kids grow up. She came over for Thanksgiving and Christmas multiple times through the years. She was very private, but I was just happy with whatever interaction she graced us with. At one point, we even attended the same church after she visited for the first time and recommended we should visit there too. After eight years as my neighbor, my husband and I decided we wanted to get a pool. I put down $3,500 to lock down the price and to begin the construction timeline. But to officially get started, all I needed was for my neighbor to sign a document saying that we, would, uh, that we could use part of her easement to access the yard. Well, I went to her with the document, but she refused to sign the document. And then I went to my other neighbor and they refused as well. There was no convincing them, even though I would pay for any damage done to their properties. I lost my money and ended up selling my house two years later. I'm assuming they never heard Mr. Rogers sing the song, Won't You Be My Neighbor? But I asked AI to help me write a song that would reflect what it means to be a neighbor in this day and age. And the song would go something like this. Don't want a neighbor, don't want the cheer. I'll keep my distance, I'll make it clear. In my own world, I'll find my space. No need for a neighborly embrace. Don't be my neighbor, don't knock on my door. I've got my peace, I want a little more. No helping hand, no friendly wave. Just leave me to myself in solitude, I'll save. No block parties, no talk in the yard. I'd rather be alone, that's not too hard. No barring sugar, no barring time. I've got my solitude and it's all mine. Now don't be offended, don't you be upset. I'm just living life with no regrets. I'll keep my distance, I'll keep my space. In my own little world, I'll find my place. And I wonder how many of us knowingly or unknowingly have sung this song with our attitudes, actions, and behaviors. What Mr. Rogers was teaching us was God's definition of being a good neighbor. Luke chapter 10, verses 29 and 37 is a well-known parable often returned, uh, referred to as the parable of the Good Samaritan. It is a call to be good neighbors. This powerful story teaches us about loving our neighbors and showing compassion to those in need. But in order to understand what it means to be a good neighbor, we must understand the first question the Jewish lawyer asked Jesus, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
He asked this question because he already knew that God exists and that we are held accountable to God. So this question is oddly specific. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Or in other words, what is our purpose in this life, which again tells us how to achieve eternal life? He wants specific tasks to accomplish to receive eternal life. He is assuming he must do something to earn it. Jesus wanted to gauge the lawyer's beliefs or, or his understanding of it. So he asked him, what does the law of Moses say and how do you read it? Well, the lawyer responds with Deuteronomy 6, 5. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And Leviticus 19, 18, where it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the lawyer's reply shows that salvation is not a matter of works or actions, but that it is about a heart towards God who fully uh, and wholly loves him. So loving God with all your heart is the starting point and everything else is a result of that love relationship with God. Meaning good works do not begin until a person has believed Jesus is the son of God, that he died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and, and, and who begins a relationship with him. Then we call good works bearing fruit of the spirit because it is a result of spending time with God. Jesus responds to the man by saying, right. Jesus told him, do this and you will live. Then verse 29 says, the man wanted to justify his actions. So we asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? During this time, the leaders of religious law were not very kind to those who were not like them. They avoided uh, being around sinners or those who didn't follow the law to the T. They also avoided anyone who was sick or disabled because they believed that they were, they were like that because of the sin in their lives. They distanced themselves from, from others because they felt that they were better or superior to everyone else. Anyone not like them were considered unclean and unworthy. Even though the lawyer knows that eternal life is about relationship with God instead of works, old habits die hard. So, when he, so then he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Because what he really wants is to get clarity on is, is who would be considered a neighbor and who isn't considered a neighbor, which was a common debate among Jewish scholars during that time. He wanted to justify his own behavior of setting himself apart, excluding others, mistreating and neglecting others. I believe he was looking for Jesus to answer some way like this. Well, your friends and family are your fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. Uh, those are your neighbors, but not those treacherous Samaritans and anyone else not like you are not your neighbors. Also, anyone who's sick or disabled are not your neighbors. So you don't have to be kind to them either. But that's not the way that Jesus responded. In, in, in response to the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells him a parable. Because Jesus just doesn't want to feed him the answer. He wants him to evaluate his own behavior in comparison to what the law says. So he tells him the story of, of a Jewish man who was robbed, beaten, and left half dead on the side of the road. A priest and a Levite passed by with, with, without offering him any help. But a Samaritan who, who would have been considered an outcast by society stops to care for the wounded man. He tends to his wounds with oil and wine puts him on his, his donkey and takes him to an inn. He pays for his immediate care and promises to pay for any additional expenses as well. Jesus concludes the story by asking the lawyer, which of the three acted as a neighbor to the beaten man? The lawyer acknowledges it was the one who showed mercy and then Jesus instructed, to, instructed him to go and do the same. 
So, so what made Jesus's story so insightful? First, let's talk about the setting. The setting of the parable, the road from Jerusalem to, to Jericho was notorious for being dangerous due to its rocky terrain and frequent robberies. The road was lined with caves that robbers would hide in waiting for their next victims. People were known to take weapons with them on the road to protect themselves. This was common occurrence on this 17-mile stretch of road, and the lawyer would have been familiar with this scenario. This context helps us to emphasize the vulnerability of the man who was attacked and left for dead on the side of the road. Second, let's talk about the characters of the parable. During the time of Jesus, there was deep animosity between Jews and Samaritans. The Jews considered the Samaritans to be religiously impure and racially inferior. This context adds significance to Jesus choosing a Samaritan as the hero of the story, challenging the prevailing prejudices and highlighting the importance of love and compassion for all people. The Samaritans were a group of people who lived in Samaria. This was in the area north of Jerusalem. When Assyria captured the northern kingdom of Israel in 721 BC, the able-bodied Israelites were taken in captivity while others who were not able-bodied uh, and their caretakers were left behind. The ones left behind intermarried with the Assyrians and gave birth to half Jews and half Gentiles. The Samaritans had their own unique copy of the first five books of scripture, as well as their own unique system of worship, and they even had their own temple. Because of all of this, the Jews and the Samaritans did not deal with one another. The other characters in the parable are the priests and the Levite, who were figures of religious authority in Jewish society. Their, their failure to help the wounded man challenges the expectations of righteousness and highlights the need for genuine compassion. We can only speculate why they refuse to help. The text doesn't tell us at all, but maybe do they fear uh, being jumped themselves? Do they fear being rendered unclean? Were they afraid someone would see them and then they themselves would be rejected? Maybe they just didn't want to be bothered. It was just an inconvenience. Maybe the investment to help the man was too high. Either way, getting involved with strangers who need our help can be too costly. And for many of us, the investment is too high. But as Jesus tells us with the parable, to refuse help is moral failure. Jesus reminds us that, the, that loving our neighbor extends beyond cultural and religious boundaries and, and that true compassion requires action. Therefore, the hero of the story isn't the priest or the Levi who are technically God's chosen people. The hero of the story is the half-breed, half-Jewish, and half-Gentile Samaritan. The most unlikely hero of this story would have been viewed as a traitor to the Jewish people. The hero is a bad guy, hashtag not what you expected. While the priest and, and, and the Levi who were Jewish leaders were unwilling to be inconvenienced by the injured man, Jesus details all the Samaritan does to save the man. Now, there were six actions in all. He comes up to the man, anoints the, the wounds with oil and wine to comfort him, bandages his wounds, he loads him on his mule, he takes him to, to an inn and cares for him, and even pays for his whole stay while, while using two days' wages and promises to pay for the extra time at the inn that could have totaled another three and a half weeks' stay. After Jesus outlines all the Samaritan did for the injured uh, Jewish man, Jesus asked the lawyer, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? Even though the answer is obvious to the lawyer, 
He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan was the good neighbor. And so he says, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus is telling us that a neighbor is not a person just in proximity or similarity to us, but by our own actions of love and mercy towards those in need, regardless of their background, social status, race, creed, or gender. Our neighbors consist of anyone in need who are made in the image of God. Jesus' response challenges their current belief on who is a neighbor and how we're supposed to treat our neighbors. His, word, his words reflect what it says in Leviticus 19 verses 33 and 34. Do not take advantage of foreigners who live among you in your land. Treat them like native born Israelites and love them as you love yourself. Remember that you were once foreigners living in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Jesus is simply saying, be a neighbor. To love God means to show mercy to those in need. Serving others and meeting the needs of our neighbors is a main principle of discipleship. This brings us to our next question. How do we become good neighbors? Becoming a good neighbor is both necessary and challenging. How do we show neighborly love even to those we want to exclude, ignore, and act like they don't exist? Y'all know who those people are. For this lawyer, he would have to step out of his comfort zone to change his whole mindset to become the neighbor Jesus expects us to be. Meaning, we must be willing to be uncomfortable to be a good neighbor by interacting with those who are not like us. What Jesus was trying to teach the lawyer was that in our own strength, it is impossible to be a good neighbor. It is the same conversation that Paul is having in Romans with the Jews. He says in Romans 3.20, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. As individuals, it's our relationship with God that makes us treat people the way that God treats us, with grace, love, and mercy. But how do we do this? How do we know this? Let's look at the parable of the Good Samaritan again in Luke 10, verses 33 and 34. It says, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. The Samaritan poured oil and wine in the wound. Practically speaking, the wine with his alcoholic uh, content would serve as an antiseptic. And the olive oil with his restorative qualities would serve as medication. But these details uh, tell us more than just its medicinal benefits. Spiritually speaking, Jesus tells us what is needed to be a good neighbor. We need wine. The wine represents the blood of the new covenant which Christ shed on the cross for the remission of our sins. We need oil. The oil represents the anointing of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us, our hearts, and in our minds. So we need a relationship with God and the anointing of the Holy Spirit to love others the way that Christ loves us. And it is the combination of the oil and the wine that is needed to heal the wounds of broken people all around us. But they are only healed when you and I stop what we are doing and notice them, listen to them, and care for them by giving our time, resources, and our attention. Therefore, we must adhere to the most important commandment to love God with all our heart, soul, and with all our might to be able to fulfill the second commandment to love our neighbors. Mercy comes through a relationship with Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can embrace those who we may not like and those who don't like us. Now, the next question is this. As a church, what can we do to be neighborly? 
We are individuals who make up the church, God's church, the body of Christ. If Jesus calls us to love our neighbors and empowers us to do so, it is important that we always remain externally focused, meaning that our attention, time, and resources are targeted on extending help to those who are in need in our community. Now, right now, we're in Garland, Texas, but God has called you to love those in, in, in the community where you live all over the world. As we continue to remain a church that is externally focused, there are plenty of opportunities that allow us to know Garland, love Garland, and serve Garland. And in knowing Garland, and in loving Garland, and in serving Garland, we know that there are lots of needs that we as a church can come together to address. We are partnering right now with Academy for Mentoring Program that connects churches to schools and communities through mentoring fourth graders in leadership. They provide a mentor for every fourth grader in economically disadvantaged schools they serve. We also gather together to build relationships and long-lasting friendships with senior adults at local senior centers. We plan fun social activities, both indoor and outdoor, and craft classes that are designed to help seniors become engaged and flourish in the local community. Did you know that we partner with the Jonathan Project, who is for adults with multiple disabilities? On the third Friday of every other month, a meal is prepared by a ministry team and served to residents from 13 group homes, as well as individuals with intellectual disabilities who come there with a family member. After dinner, we join together to engage in activities like games and crafts. And anyone who lives in Texas knows that the weather can affect the homeless in ways we can't even imagine. And so we partner with Garland Overnight Warming Shelter, also known as GLOWS, which is a coalition of agencies, church organizations, and individuals working together to provide safe shelter to our unhoused friends during freezing weather. We have a list of organizations we partner with both locally and globally so that we can fulfill God's call of being a good neighbor. Now you can find out that list by going to springcreekchurch.org slash outreach dash partners to see the whole list. As we push into God's call for, for the church of being good neighbors, I want us to remember a couple of things. Being a good neighbor can be uncomfortable. It will challenge our beliefs on what it means to be a good neighbor. And just like Jesus didn't give the lawyer the answer to the question, who is my neighbor, so, so, so that he would challenge his thinking with the law, God wants us to think about our thinking when it comes to helping those in need. When I brought my first home, I thought this would be my forever home, but it wasn't. What I learned is that nothing I have had or have truly belongs to me. It was given to me by God to be used for his purposes, just like this building and everything in it. Though we have ownership of it, we take care of it, and we meet here, it belongs to God, and he will use it for his glory to extend help and mercy to those who need to be blessed by it. And as a church, this is what it means to be neighborly, to be a place that welcomes all, reflecting God's love in every single thing that we do. This brings us to our next question. What can we do as individuals to be good neighbors? I want to share a story about my grandmother because I think it demonstrates clearly what it means to be a good neighbor as individuals. My grandmother had this amazing way of making you feel special as if you were the only one in the world that mattered to her when you were with her. When I visited her as a kid, I would run up to her in the kitchen because she was always in the kitchen cooking like every Puerto Rican grandmother, and I would ask her for special cookies. 
she would go into her cabinet and open her special can where she hid these special cookies. But what was on the inside of the can never matched what was on the outside of the can. She would fill the can with generic store brand cookies. She would always have chocolate chip cookies, oatmeal cookies, and those special oatmeal cookies like with the icing on top. Of course, I always grab the one with the icing on top because y'all know I'm like a sugar addict. I wasn't the only one who got to experience her special cookies. When she lived in the Bronx, she had a neighbor who was Jewish and knew no Spanish and my grandmother knew no English. And they had coffee and cookies all the time. When she moved to Florida, she met a Jamaican lady who also knew no Spanish and they became friends over coffee and cookies. In, in, in the new house that was built next to hers, a Chinese family moved in who didn't know Spanish and knew just a little bit of English. And they became friends over coffee and cookies. When, when, when her other neighbor found herself in a bad marriage, fighting with her husband all the time, my grandmother would go over and offer her sons to come over and have some special cookies so that they wouldn't hear their parents fighting. You see, the cookies weren't special, neither was the can. But what made them special is that she put them there for you. She wanted you to feel special as you ate them because this is what she had. She offered her time, her attention, and her resources. She wanted you to know that she, just like the cookies, were always there waiting for you whenever you needed her. She taught me that it wasn't about expensive gifts, it was how you made people feel. And she made me feel like I was her favorite. And I know that she made each person in her life feel like they were her favorite too when they were with her. So what can we do as individuals to be good neighbors? We can be like the Good Samaritan and acknowledge people in need. We can anoint the wounds of others with, with the love of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. We can use what resources we have to show care, not just on a short-term basis, but following through to ensure help. My challenge for each of us is to look around with eyes of mercy and continuously ask all those created in the, in the image of God, won't you be my neighbor? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day that you have given us, Lord. I pray for each person that's watching today, Father, that they would look with different eyes on all those who were created in your image, Lord, that they would seek out to be a good neighbor, Father, because the opportunities are there, Lord, to be the hands and feet of who you are, to demonstrate your character in everything that we do, in every single action, in, in every way that we interact with people. We thank you, Father, for those opportunities, and we pray that you may give us courage, Lord, so that when those opportunities do show up, that we will be a good neighbor. Father, we thank you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Be sure to meet us through the week at Spring Creek Church online. You can find that at springcreekchurch.org. To get updates on our online campus, all you have to do is text the word online to 96995. See you next week.